All right. So thank you for being here. Welcome back today. Continuing reading of Sutta Nepata uh, 3.6, meaning Mahavaga Chapter 3, Sutta 6, Sabhya Sutta <clears throat> Part 2. Continuation from last time. Uh, Sabhya the Wanderer is a Brahmin or um, a wanderer at that time. He's sort of a non, somewhat non-aligned Brahmin, it seems to me. The term wanderer uh, was common then for certain renunciates or yogis in the <clears throat> greater society around Gautama. And what we've got here is his uh, questions to Gautama. At the top of the sutta, um, it's a very interesting note uh, or portion of the sutta, the second sentence, translated by Tanisara Bhikkhu, who wrote, <clears throat> Now on that occasion, when the Blessed One was staying near Rajagaha, questions had been assigned to Sabiya the Wanderer by a Devata, who was a former relative of his, meaning a family member who passed over onto the astral plane in time space is a Devata or a uh, Deva, really means a higher dimensional benevolent oriented or positively oriented being, inspiring him to ask questions of someone. And the inspiration was, Sabia, if any contemplative or Brahmin, when asked these questions, answers them, live the holy life in his presence. So <laughs> Sabia, who's a sincere fellow, uh, like some of the Brahmins who question Gautama, uh, gets inspiration from his dead relative, uh, who's on the astral plane, not dead at all, and encourages him to ask these questions, which are basically five sets of four to anyone who can answer them. And the one who can answer them, uh, you should follow the holy life or be uh, t uh, go into pupillage or tutelage under that teacher. And so we've got five sets of four questions, pretty much about the goal of the path, the... Um, nature of the one who's made final release or attainment or moksha liberation, the, the nature of the one who's achieved the final goal of the path. And so we have 20 different uh, questions concerning uh, aspects of the mind and the knowing and the life, the living, the way of living, uh, the path, the achievement of such a one. Now, we went through the first two sets of four, uh, what was his asking, you know, what is one said to be a monk, or composed, one is composed, one is tamed, or one is awakened. Then the second set was what is uh, the nature of the one who's said to be a Brahmin or a contemplative, one who is washed, and one who's called a Naga. And... <clears throat> Part of what's going on here is Gautama's explaining, uh, describing himself, or the Arahant. And there's a word translated, there's a Sanskrit word, tatata, tatata, which is the root of the term tatagata, which you'll find um, nine times repeated in the, question, in the replies. So nine out of 20 replies actually include the word such. And so <clears throat> uh, 
this is in contra. You know, there's in describing the nature of the one who's had a final attainment. There is the lifestyle of that one, which uh, partakes you know, or, or pertains to their morality, uh, thought, word, and deed, and uh, how they live. Then the conduct. Then there is the mind or the knowing of that one who's had final attainment. And uh, their knowing or their mind is completely at one with reality. And that's where we find the word such. <clears throat> and a sub-theme here is that the one who uh, uh, is now such, ta-ta-ta, like, like Gautama being the ta-ta-gata, which I'll look into in a moment, <clears throat> um, is one who has finished theory. And so in the second set of four, one of the questions is, uh, how can we understand, how can I understand the one who's finished or washed? And Gautama said, having washed off all evils, within and without, in all the world, so there's washed off all evils within and without, which means uh, perfect conduct coming from no more roots of unwholesome, unwholesome tendencies, right? The unwholesome three poisons, uh, grasping, aversion, ignorance, or uh, greed, hate, and uh, ignorance, basic uh, you know, kind of secondary you know, functional ignorance, let's say. The, the functions of the mind uh, don't, are not occluded or confused or uh, speedy, people who trip on their own thoughts, the mind that can never stop, the mind that never can rest, is a sec kind of this kind of secondary ignorance, one of the three unwholesome roots, one of the three poisons, grasping aversion ignorance, <clears throat> washed off all that with no more craving, clinging. Uh, then also the one who's finished has washed off... Um, washed off evils within and without with regard to theories of beings, human and divine. He goes to no theory. He's said to be washed. And that's point nine. And <clears throat> Tanasaro said that there's an alliteration. In many cases in this sutta we see alliterations, meaning Gautama's reply to the 20 questions in his native Pali, or I guess it's Magadha dialect of northern India, became written as Pali that later became Sanskrit or can be translated to Sanskrit as well. The alliteration in the Magadha language or Pali language, I guess, I'm not sure which he was speaking, I guess the dialect of Magadha, that area in northern India. Alliterations in his answer, in the words of his answer. <coughs> Tanisaro said there's an alliteration here between neti, doesn't come or go, and nahatako, washed. So the one that is finished coming and going, meaning uh, the Tathagata, as a translation of uh, the thus come one, the thus gone one, the one who's just come, the one who's just gone, the one who's finished with coming and going, doesn't come and go, is the one who's washed. Washed of the roots by which they would continue reincarnating or coming and going. Tanasar said, this verse also contains a play on words, Normally, one would say that a person is washed of dirt, uklapa. Here, the arahan is said to be washed of theory, kapa. Not kapamaki. <clears throat> kapamaki for the sushi 
community. So washed of dirt uh, is akin to the Arahan washed of theory. And <laughs> this is um, the entry I would like to use. And, uh, you know, I mean, I could probably do this sutta for uh, three or four weeks. Uh, I'll try to finish it today. It may not be possible because I'm not rushing. Um, uh, so, uh, washed of theory is an aspect of, of such, ta-ta-ta. <clears throat> and when Gautama, in the next reply, explained for the one who's called a naga, or a noble dragon, or a snake, I mean, whatever, naga is sort of mythological creature, but noble. That one is also called such. Um, when we look at the word such, uh, which is used nine times in nine replies, actually, uh, Gautama explaining the um, nature of the one who's finished with the path <clears throat> from Wikipedia, we see it's variously translated as thusness or suchness. It's also a central concept in Mahayana Buddhism and Chan Buddhism. And yes, while well, alive, got Buddha referred to himself as Tathagata, <clears throat> which can mean one who has thus come, one who has thus gone, one who's arrived at suchness. The thus come one, the thus gone one, is commonly, it's a very, very awkward translation. The such one, the such, the one who is such, the such one, the thus one. Eh? Meaning the one who's finished uh, with theory, finished with coming and going, finished with um, relativity. Finished with relativity means <clears throat> cannot be described in relative terms. Has finished time and space, which is the basis of relativity, right? Dualism, subject-object or inner outer, or this and that, is a, a statement uh, of relativity. Relative, that is objective relative to I who is subjective. That's dualistic mind, dual consciousness, dualistic, you know, duality. <clears throat> and the goal is beyond duality or non-duality, which is also beyond unity. And so Gautama doesn't say the law of one, he says ta-ta-ta or ta-ta, which means such or thus. And so referring to himself as Tathagata is totally akin to Nityananda referring to himself as this one here. And that is, both of them are fine. <laughs> both of them are very good. And what you, what's very interesting, when the page, down the page in this Wikipedia write-up of Tathata or such or thus, uh, is a 5th century Chinese Mahayana scripture entitled Awakening of Faith in the Mahayana, which later now current scholars believe to be a Chinese composition, not original Sanskrit. And it was attributed to Ashvagosha, another um, Indian scholar uh, akin to Buddhaghosha, who did some commentary and had a lot to say. So as Buddhism was moving out of, the, uh, out of India to China, so we're now we're talking about 1,500 years ago, um, the transit from Indian, Mah Indian Buddhism to Chinese Mahayana Buddhism, later Indian Buddhism 500 years after Gautama, and then 1,000 years after Gautama, 
uh, already uh, Indian Buddhism was taking on characteristics that later ripened fully in Chinese Mahayana. And like I've said before, while Chinese or Japanese or Korean Mahayana, likewise Tibetan Vajrayana, um, has um, absolutely um, taken some essential teachings out or removed some portions of essential teaching from the Pali Canon or de-emphasized some or added and embroidered a whole lot more, yet um, there's some fine wisdom there too. So wherever there's truth and fine wisdom, I'd like to appreciate that and recognize that and make use of that. So even though this probably is not uh, from, a, uh, from an Indian Sanskrit original, probably it was written by Chinese Buddhists 1,500 years ago, who, uh, you know, just did their own thing and said, hey, I'll explain to the community here in China uh, what I think Buddhism's all about, and it was already Mahayana at that point, uh, <clears throat> which uh, was somewhat embellishing and embroidering uh, yet there's great wisdom here too. And the quote is, in its very origin, suchness, ta-ta-ta, meaning the, the nature of this word and its reality, is of itself endowed with sublime attributes. So this is all full of attribution, right? So while Nagarjuna and Root, uh, very tight Buddhist theory, uh, rejected both affirmation and negation, Chinese Mahayana, Japanese Mahayana, Tibetan Vajrayana is full of affirmation, meaning what some would criticize as eternalism and a big butterfly moving through. It manifests, now this term such a, uh, suchness, their <laughs> affirmatory uh, write-up, which again, if you don't get attached to affirmation or negation, we can use affirmation and negation. It manifests the highest wisdom which shines throughout the world, it has true knowledge and a mind resting simply in its own being. Sounds okay. It is eternal, blissful, in its own self-being and the purest simplicity. It is invigorating, immutable, free, because it possesses all these attributes and is deprived of nothing. It is designated as the womb of Tathagata and the Dharma body of Tathagata. <laughs> you can just see how 1,500 years ago um, <clears throat> uh, Mayana was already uh, going to town in a very Vedantic uh, affirmatory way of embellishment and uh, embroidering characteristics of the goal, of the goals of the path. The true knowledge, mind resting in its own being, eternal. Uh, that is a real no-no in the Pali Canon. You don't say anything's eternal, but beyond time-space or beyond deathless. So you see, uh, well, Indian Buddhism, Pali Canon, talks about the deathless, which is a sort of subtle, quite a subtle concept. Chinese Mayana, Mayana in general, Vajrayana, um, felt free enough to add all sorts of affirmatory, what could be called reifications or conceptualizations that are akin to the deathless, but a little easier to grasp, like eternal, blissful, in its own self-being, pure simplicity, and then people get attached to that stuff, attached to their conceptions of what they think that means, and then they try to uh, be eternal, blissful, or try to hold and keep some kind of eternal, blissful self-being, pure simplicity, 
a mind resting simply in its own being, trying to be that way. But actually, there's a difference between being uh, finished, which is akin to being <clears throat> like these attributes, being akin to these qualities, but is beyond them, versus trying to inbuild these qualities while they're actually um, <clears throat> uh, overlay or, or add-ons that the person is sort of trying to capture and hold. Somebody just talked to me about trying to maintain certain uh, positive attributes in mind throughout the day. And I said, this is impossible. So <clears throat> rather than try to identify what we were, where we should be at and trying to stay there all the time, it's useful instead to cut the roots to harm, cut the roots to the, of the distortions that trouble us. Cutting the roots, then the mind is, without trying, more fully, more naturally resting in its own being, could be said to be so. And that sounds very Vedantic. And yet this is Chinese Mahayana. And so that's where the Theravadans say, no, no, thank you. We'll stay with the Pali Canon. But this term suchness that Gautama used already, without explaining it too much, certainly is resonant with the Mahayana description. <clears throat> and <clears throat> the, the last thing I want to read on this page is this little write-up where it said, R.H. Robinson, echoing D.T. Suzuki, who was a most famous Japanese scholar of uh, Mahayana, Buddhism, and Zen. Diti Suzuki conveys how Lankavatara Sutra perceives dharmata, meaning things as they are, or the nature of dhamma, dharma, the nature of what is, through the portal of sunyata. And this is very, <laughs> very subtle. And this is, again, I personally find um, some interesting philosophy and teaching in Mahayana although I'm aware that they've strayed from the Pali Canon. <clears throat> the write-up here is the, the statement, and this was from uh, Richard Robinson, 1957, Some Logical Aspects of Nagarjuna's System. Mm. So now we're getting to some classic Buddhist scholarship, um, Western Buddhist scholarship on classical Buddhist scholarship. The Langavatara Sutta, this is from Sutra, this is from Mahayana, probably was written in China, actually. The, or there may be a Sanskrit original, but again, things got kind of messy at that point. <clears throat> the Langavatara is always careful to balance sunyata with tatata. Right? Sunyata is emptiness, tatata is suchness. Or to insist that when the world is viewed as sunya, or empty, it is grasped in its suchness. And so this is the balance between uh, right nihilism and right affirmation <laughs> in trying to describe the non-dual. So sunyata as emptiness. When the world is viewed as sunya or empty, it's also recognized as tatata or such. Now again, the problem is these are these are conceptual designations, descriptors of the deathless or of the inconceivable, of the trans-conceptual, of the non-dual. You cannot describe, you cannot fully um, reveal, let's say, reveal the non-dual by dualistic language or concept, of course. And that's where Nagarjuna is coming in saying the middle way is between affirmation and negation. 
because both are reificatory, reificatory, to if, to reificatory, meaning reify, meaning to take a, a concept as a thing. It is not. There is no self. There is a self. It's eternal. Both are reifications, affirmation, negation, middle way, rejects both. And we're going to see that down the line also um, in a further description, a further understanding of the term uh, tatata or tatagata, Gautama talking about himself, in the next link. <laughs> this is all just explanation to the word such, the translation of the word tatata, tatata appearing in the Sabya Sutta nine times out of 20 questions or 20 replies. Uh, to understand what we're what we're looking at here, um, as non-dual as possible, a descriptor of the non-dual. And this balance, apparent balancing of sunyata with tatata, is very sweet, actually. And this is the origin of the phrase: things are not as they appear, nor are they otherwise. Things are not as they appear, because things, the appearance of things, is sunya or empty, meaning. The the, it, the the things are not as they appear. Things, meaning apparent multiplicity of objects, nama rupa, names and forms, are in their true nature. Their true nature, the true nature of the appear of of many things, their true nature is not their appearance, because appearance is is empty, is sunya. Sunyata means one of the meanings is the emptiness of appearance that the physical is inseparable from the metaphysical. So if you don't know the metaphysical and you only perceive the appearance called the physical, that's called illusion or maya or ignorance. And so not knowing the metaphysical that's inseparable from the physical is being caught in the illusion. Knowing it is a realization of sunyata. And so emptiness can be understood to be the basis of the notion that the material world is maya. Mayek, illusory, um, meaning uh, appearance is not uh, substantial. Appearance is not the whole of that which appears. Things are not what they appear, or only as they appear, nor are they otherwise. The second part of the phrase, nor are they otherwise, is to say uh, appearance is illusory, and yet, appearance is an aspect of suchness. <laughs> tatata, or tatata, tatata, tatata. Uh, suchness uh, is associated with the true nature of uh, that which is more than its appearance. And so things are not as they appear, nor are they otherwise. The true nature is not against or exclusive of appearance. Illusory appear, appearance is illusory. An illusory appearance is an aspect of true nature, or reveals true nature, or is not separate from, or against, or outside, or excluded from true nature. Nor are they otherwise. The true nature of things are not otherwise than their appearance, but they're not only their appearance. The physical and the metaphysical are inseparable. The physical is simply seeing the manifestation without its nature and the metaphysical is seeing its nature perhaps exclusive of its appearance and so the appearance that's illusory 
can be perceive, perceiving the, the illusory nature of appearance, which is basically the idea, the belief that appearance is substantial, not impermanent or anatta. You know, the two of the three characteristics, anishanatta, impermanence, transitoriness, and no self or insubstantiality. Knowing that is knowing um, uh, sunya. <clears throat> appearance is illusory because it's not substantial and it's impermanent. And even impermanence is insubstantial. So we can't even say that, that impermanence is solid or substantial. Impermanence is also an artifact of deluded or ignorant-based perception. So without ignorance, <laughs> one is free of perception. So then one doesn't perceive appearance as distinct from what else there is, or the metaphysical. One can see uh, the deathlessness of the death full. Um, and seeing the whole of that is uh, tatata, or suchness. Now, <laughs> still, I want to go even further back before we come back to Sabia. Uh, from the Journal of the Royal Asiatic Society, 1898. Where were you in 1898? <clears throat> the write-up of the word Tathagata, he didn't even put an A there, he just put T-T, Tathagata, Robert Chalmers, a journal, he was probably a fellow of the Royal Asiatic Society, so some people were doing hard work then. Uh, he wrote that the precise meaning of this familiar title, Tathagata, title of the Buddha is still unsettled, as the word Tathagata is not used either in the Upanishads, earlier Vedantic, or, so far as I'm aware, in older Sanskrit writings, there exists no available evidence earlier than the Pali Pitakas, meaning the three baskets, including the Sutta Pitaka, wherein we find uh, Sutta Nipata. And there, its use is so common as to merit special investigation, meaning it's a very commonly used word. It's the main title that Gautama applied to himself. So just as Nichinanda commonly or most commonly it appears said that said of himself this one here. Gautama most commonly it appears spoke of himself as the Tathagata. The thus come one. Uh, the, the such come one. The such one. It's not even coming and going. But again, there are different translations. And so Tata can be coming or going or such. But I think ultimately it's beyond coming and going, and so it really is closer to such. The such one. <laughs> the such one. And Nityananda said this one here. Same. And when Nityananda says here, he means such. This one here is this one of such. Of such. Such. The crazy word, right? It means reality as it is. It means as it is ness. It means uh, sat. Ultimately, it's sat like sat-chit-ananda, sat-truth. The truth of what? The truth of reality beyond conception, beyond differentiation, dualistic conception applied, um, the integration of physical, metaphysical, um, reality beyond dualistic perception and conception. So, um, in this write-up from Robert Chalmers, 1898, he then said, um, he first uh, investigated, and it was on one of the pages on Tathagata from Wikipedia, 
uh, eight perspectives, I'm not going to read them, of Buddha Gosha on the meaning of the term Tathagata. And rather than that, <clears throat> um, what I do want to bring in is that he added that in the Jaina books, meaning in the Jain tradition, which was coincident with Gautama, in fact, the leader of the Jains 2,500 years ago, Mahavira, great hero, was a contemporary of Gautama. They were, you know, it's like uh, Confucius and Lao Tzu were contemporaries, so it seems, or may well be, likewise, Gautama and Mahavira were contemporaries. And he wrote, somebody wrote, in the Jaina books, we sometimes find the term Tathagaya, that's, that's the Pali or Magadha, and the Sanskrit was Tatragata, Tatragata, he who has attained that world or emancipation, Tatragata, as applied to jinnas, who are, jinnas, meaning those who attain complete enlightenment, as opposed to other beings who are called uh, Ihagaya or Idagata, living in this world. So it's a matter of um, this world or the next or the world of coming and going versus the, re, the, the nature of emancipation beyond coming and going. And so such is beyond change. That's why it's called, it's akin to the deathless. The deathless means the birthless. The birthless means it's non-arising. What has no death has no birth. And so it's a funny term, that deathless. You could equally say the birthless, the unborn, and the uncreate. Right? So what's before, what's, what's uncreate or deathless or birthless that never arose is prior to light. It's pre-luminality. Okay? It's pre-luminal. What's pre-luminal? Pre-luminal is before, um, <clears throat> before the Logos or before the Word. You know, God spoke the Word and, and light can let there be light. Before that is the deathless. So, or the mind, the, the utterance from intelligent infinity, let there be light from the one infinite creator or intelligent infinity. The utterance, let there be light, uh, is of the deathless. The letting be of light, the creation of light, intelligent energy, right? The basis of the seven rays, seven dimensions, octaves and all that. The, the generation of light, Right, um, heliogenesis. <laughs> Can you say? I don't know if that's sun. Uh, luxogenesis. <clears throat> uh, that's mixing things up. But the uh, generation of light, or genesis, is the genesis of that which arises, persists, and dies. So the death, uh, you know, death came into being with light, and that which arises, persists, and passes away is that which comes and goes. And that is the basis of reincarnation or the nature of light that differentiates the seven rays and octaves and dimensions in which beings or apparently, you know, differentiated entities of apparently separative consciousness evolve and move back to source. And so the term Tathagata probably may well have been how Mahavira and Gautama spoke of themselves. And so they use the term Tathagaya 
And then in, San, in, in Gautama's case, we see Tathagata. Very, very interesting. And uh, he wrote here that, considering the close relationship in which most of the dogmatical terms of the Jainas, the Jains, stand to those of the Buddhas, it's difficult to believe that Tathagata and Tathagaya should not originally have conveyed similar ideas. Very similar, of course. And so, uh, again, uh, that was the... Con- but it's not in the Upanishads. <laughs> it may even be that, that Ma, old Mahavira himself came up with that term, or somebody, some fellow 2,500 years ago, Mahavira or Gautama, or one of their followers, or somebody said the term Tathagaya, Tathagata, and then it stuck. And um, it was not from the Upanishads, it seems, which is very interesting. And so the term he who has arrived there or he who um, has gone or finished the going uh, arrived at suchness. And one last point I want to write, I want to read from this page, which um, goes back to this, which will bridge to uh, Sabya Sutta. Uh, uh, uh. There we go. Uh, from page 110, this is the same link, ccbsntu.edu.taiwan, mm, National Taiwan University. Hey, hey, so a shout out to those in Taipei who put this up for us and others uh, long ago. <laughs> so there you've got a Buddhist scholarly a Buddhist studies department in Taipei at ntu.edu.taiwan putting into English online or reproducing the Journal of the Royal Asiatic Society from 1898 (laughs) with a Buddhist scholar doing a rundown of the basis of the word Tathagata. Good good stuff. Down the page... um, Chalmers says, concerning such a mentally emancipated bhikkhu, because that's what Gautama is talking about, freedom, the one who's uh, in moksha, mukti, the one who's finished, emancipated. Concerning such a mentally, or totally, emancipated bhikkhu, brethren, not even the highest of devas can ascertain where resides the Tathagata's mind, meaning what happens, where is the Buddha? And why? Because even in this present life, here and now, the Tathagata, as I affirm, is one who cannot be traced out. And that's, again, akin to Vijnanam Anidasanam, right? Consciousness without surface, or consciousness without trace. So, even now, in the here and now, the Tathagata, meaning this, the being, the beingness, the entity, not the body. We can trace his body, but we're talking about the one that uses the body, so it sounds very, uh, you know, Vedantic, dualistic. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't matter, <laughs> because the body will die, and the Buddha won't. And so that's the point. It, it, the, the Cartesian dualism, mind, body, or self and vehicle, is not a problem, so long as you understand that that, that which uses the body is of the is indefinable and of the nature of infinity. <laughs> infinity appears as finite agency 
making use of an apparent temporary vehicle. If you can get that, you can use, you can, you don't have to worry about the, the reificatory problems of Cartesian dualism, meaning body, mind, or self, and uh, agency. I'm the agent. I'm the one who's doing my thing versus a body uh, and our environment. Anyway, he says, uh, concerning such an emancipated bhikkhu, brethren, meaning bhikkhus, not even the highest of the devas, in the highest dimensions, can ascertain where resides the Tathagata's mind, and why? Because even in the present life, here and now, meaning in the body of Gautama as well, the Tathagata, as I affirm, is one who cannot be traced out. When I say this, and when I affirm this, certain persons, Dumbos, falsely assert that I am a nihilist, and preach the extirpation, the destruction, and the annihilation of an existent creature. I am no nihilist. I do not preach such extirpation, means rooting out, and annihilation. As in the past, so now too, all that I expound is dukkha and the cessation of dukkha. Boom. Mic drop. And so, to the silly, to the silly white men who think that um, Gautama and Buddhism is uh, nihilistic or pessimistic, they don't understand it. He addressed this directly, that certain persons falsely assert, they think they're right, <laughs> of course. Nihilists are generally quite arrogant. They are absolutely, they strongly affirm their nihilism, which is cute. They don't undercut themselves. If, you, if you're a real nihilist, you have to undercut all affirmation. So, <laughs> the real nihilist is, um, is a Taoist. <laughs> but that's just the, the, the negation of false uh, samskaric activity. When I say this and when I affirm this, certain persons falsely assert that I am a nihilist and preach, they preach, or they preach believing that he's preaching, the extirpation, the destruction, and the annihilation of an existent creature. I am no nihilist. I do not preach such extirpation and annihilation as in the past. So now, too, all that I expound is dharma, or actually dukkha, dukkha and the cessation of dukkha. And so the dharma, but the dharma, is centered, is path-centered. Path-centered on the reality or the nature of dukkha, stress, suffering, dissatisfactoriness, and its cessation. That's it. And so Gautama is not an annihilationist. He's not an eternalist. He's not a nihilist. And people who think that Buddhism is pessimistic or world-denying or something like that generally just don't understand it. You know? Well, as somebody said, um, speak your truth. Speak yourself. Speak your truth freely. Because those who matter don't mind and those who mind don't matter. <laughs> True. So, now, back to Sabia. And we'll see some echoes of what, what Gautama just said. And this is, again, being freed, uh, washed of theory. The Arahan washed of theory is akin to Gautama saying, I simply teach Dukkha and the cessation of Dukkha. I'm not into theory. Then, let's see where the time is. <laughs> All right, that's 40 minutes of an intro to get back to where we left off last time. Uh, the third set of four questions, Sabia asked, whom do the awakened call a field victor? 
In what way is one skilled and how is one wise? And how is one called by the name of sage? Blessed one, answer when I've asked you. Answer, blessed one, when I've asked you. And so, field victor, the one who's skilled, the one who's wise, and the one who can be called sage. And Gautama explains about field victor first. Having examined all fields, heavenly, human, and the fields of the Brahmas, meaning all seven dimensions or 31 planes of fields of existence, freed from the root bonds of all fields, which we can call all dimensionalities or realms, he's truly called a field victor, right? So the, that, which would, that which is we would call distortion, that which is of unwholesome tendency, that which is of attachment and aversion, grasping and aversion, uh, craving, uh, clinging, associated with existence in all 31 planes, heaven, human, and Brahmins. Having examined all that, he's freed from um, attachment and downfall at, in all of those realms. And the commentary, Sutta Nepata Atakata, um, identifies field as kama, saying kama is the field, consciousness the seed, craving the moisture, and so different levels of becoming, producing the way different levels of becoming are produced, or attachment and a downfall by the armies of Mara, the ten armies of Mara, uh, associated with any one of the various uh, planes of existence. You can say that uh, consciousness is the field and um, craving the moisture um, that ripens kama the seed. There are a few ways of looking at it, of course. But, but in general, we can say that uh, incarnation or experience, dimensional experience, is itself a karmic ripening. And so here, Buddha Gosha, I guess, identified the field as karma, and that by craving, the seeds of consciousness are moistened and uh, sprout, meaning we appear at various levels. <laughs> so, incarnation, multidimensional incarnation, reincarnation, is a karmic ripening, is, the, uh, is ripened by craving, clinging, uh, whereupon uh, consciousness of a certain dimension is experienced. Uh, what's ripened is karma, but what's ripened is the consciousness of, of beingness at that level. <laughs> and the field victor is the one that's finished with all that, that uh, the field incarnation and karmic ripening or consciousness um, experience at those levels. <laughs> eh? Then we're talking about the word skillful. And he answered, having examined all storehouses, heavenly human storehouses of Brahma. So fields and storehouses associated with 31 planes. Fields for karmic ripening and consciousness and awareness and experience and storehouses. So freed from the root bond of all the fields and freed from the root bonds of all storehouses. What's, that's one called skillful. The note here, Tanasaro, the, the, the footnotes on this sutta are really excellent from Tanasaro. I mean, really worth the entrance ticket. <laughs> Just the, foot, the footnotes. 
12. As with field, Sutta Nipata Atta identifies storehouses as storehouses of Kama. And there's then alliteration between storehouses or Kosani and skillful or Kusalo. Right? So Akusala means un, unskillful. Kusala or Kusalo, skillful. <clears throat> there's an alliteration between storehouses, uh, Kosani and Kusalo. Um, the most skillful has no the most <laughs> the most skillful has no storehouse and doesn't ripen karma. And again, this is not where we're at or where we will be after this lifetime, but it's where we'll um, arrive eventually when we <laughs> uh, no longer have interest in the seven dimensions or thirty-one planes. But there's no hurry, you know. Then, so finished with the fields and finished with the storehouses, finished with the dimensionalities and ripening of karma. Having examined all white flowers, I like white flowers, within and without, one of pure discernment has gone beyond dark and bright. He's called wise. Such. And so the first entrance of the word tata, tata, ta is here ex- uh, explaining the one who's called wise. The one who's called wise is wise because they're finished with ignorance and wisdom. (laughs) They're finished with theory. They're finished with speculation. They're finished um, with uh, fashioning interpretation, which is all speculative. Uh, They're finished with that because they live in such. Examined all white flowers. The note here is long and interesting. Pandara, or Pandura, Sanskrit, is a flower. <laughs> According to Buddha Gosha again, white flowers stands for the six sense media, meaning the uh, apparent objects of five physical and one mental perceiver or sense door, in that they're normally pure and yet can grow. All right. Alternative possibility, <laughs> so there are multiple interpretations in the commentary. Alternative possibility is that white flowers stands for states of mind marked by perception of whiteness, such as white totality and the mastery described in Anguttara Nikaya 10.29. And this is akin to what Ajahn Sao said to his high-level disciple, when you're in a certain kind of brightness in a deep state of samadhi, uh, be aware when it changes. (laughs) And so... Um, and one can perceive that in meditation that initially there's a sort of occludedness meaning I I don't see clearly or visually there's some kind of uh, very subtle hazy and then after a half hour then it seems like I'm here and present more fully be here now means um, dissolve the occluding haze of thought in mind Right, like the white haze of a sky, uh, when you finally, when when all the white haze of the cloud, water moisture in the sky is dried up and gone, you see, wow, this sky is so deeply blue, meaning this mind is so clear. Uh, this case is the is, is that clarity is akin to the white, and the one who's finished with the path is finished with. Um, the transit from dark to white or any attachment to white or, or bright or clear. So, Anguttara Nikaya 10.29. One percipient, I don't know who translated maybe it was Tanisaro. One percipient, meaning perceiver, of the formless internally sees forms externally as white. 
this is also a, a, a marker of spiritual development, meaning uh, <laughs> I look, I open my eyes and everything is bright white light. One percipient or one perceptual indicator of the formless internally can or sees forms externally as white, white in their color, white in their features, white in their glow, just as the morning star is white, white in its color, white in its features, white in its glow, or just as the Varanasi muslin, meaning cloth from Varanasi, smooth on both sides, is white, white in its color, white in its features, white in its glow. In the same way, one percipient of the formless internally, meaning one mode of perceiving a formless jhana, one of them, some aspect of them, sees forms externally as white, white in their color, white in their features, white in their glow. Mastering them, he is percipient of I know, I see. <laughs> and as the same sutra, sutta further notes, this is the highest state of mastery, quote, yet even in the beings who are percipient in this way, uh, all is white in and out, there is still aberration, there is change meaning coming and going. Seeing this, the instructed disciple of the Noble Ones grows disenchanted with that. That's exactly what Ajahn Sa was saying to his uh, disciple. The uh, Be aware of the change from the perception of that all white or bright. White doesn't necessarily mean white color. White can also mean transparency or, or clear, um, colorless, transparent, bright. Uh, being, being disenchanted with that, he becomes dispassionate towards what is supreme. <laughs> he becomes dispassionate toward what is supreme. And even more so toward what is inferior. So the value of relativity is that, yeah, there is a better and a worse. Um, it's better to <laughs> for your long-term welfare and benefit to live in a moral way than in an immoral or amoral way. Uh, even if both... Even if... Um, Appearance is empty. Um, there is empty. There, there is a relative, greater or lesser relative value to ways of conduct. <laughs> so uh, he's dispassionate towards what's supreme, even more so towards what's inferior or what's harmful. As the verse here notes, a person going beyond this state would have to go beyond all states of darkness and brightness to attain release, and that's the point. <clears throat> so, examined all the white flowers, within and without, one of pure discernment gone beyond dark and bright. And that's the point. Uh, the white flowers is very much, I think, it probably really is associated with the uh, perception of, of all clear, of all bright, of um, all shining, supreme light. You know, it, it's, I mean, all white is akin to all seen as intelligent uh, intelligent energy, right? Light, with a capital L. All white is all light. That's intelligent energy, love light, light love. And that's uh, even, you know, akin to the sixth density perception that uh, we've no longer seek light, we've become light. And yet, light has a call as a source. And in the end, one returns to the source of light. Then, finally, knowing false and true Dhamma, within and without in all the world, he's worshipped by beings human and divine, having transcended snares and nets, he's a sage. So, while 
uh, so again, another indication of one who's finished the path. Um, they know what's true, they know what's false, uh, and they're no longer snared or netted by their own ignorance, craving, clinging. Now we can move along. In the next set of four, um, Sabia asked, Having attained what is one said to be an attainer of knowledge? Then, in what way is one well tested? And how is one persistent? And why is one named a thoroughbred? So, definitions of an attainer of knowledge, the one well tested, the one who's persistent, and the one who could be named a thoroughbred. Gautama, again, um, indicating transcendent, uh, transcendence from theory. Having examined all knowledges, those of Brahmins, those of contemplatives, devoid of passion for all feelings, gone beyond knowledge, he's an attainer of knowledge, right? Uh, Mahayana saying, the only way to save all beings, right? may all beings be well and happy, I, I vow to save all beings. The only way to save all beings is the realization that there's no, there are no beings that need to be saved. So, realization of emptiness as um, attainment of the bodhisattva, bodhisattva vow, save all beings, realizing there are no beings that need to be saved. And again, people can play games with that um, or pretend that they're there or think that they're there. But um, all the attributes of supreme attainment um, are simply uh, dualistic conceptions from here of what it seems to be there. When one's there, um, they don't apply either. And Gautama knows that too. So, finished with knowledge. <laughs> that's, why, that's why Gautama says, all I teach is um, dukkha and cessation of dukkha. As in the past, so now too, all that I expound is dukkha and cessation of dukkha. I'm not a nihilist and I'm not an eternalist. I'm not into theory and, and view. And right view is that all views are ultimately going to be uh, anatta, anicca anatta dukkha. Anicca anatta dukkha is another way of saying sunyata, actually. And yet, there's no annihilation or destruction. And that's called uh, tatata, or suchness. So, emptiness of the um, illusory and the non-annihilation uh, of freedom as ta-ta-ta. Then, having tested objectification with name and name and form, within and without, the root of disease, freed from the root bond of disease. He's called well-tested. So, the one who's finished has been tested fully. <laughs> it's rough. And uh, it's good to have mild testing. But, you know... <laughs> this is not a vacation. And so <laughs> nobody comes to earth just to take it easy, generally, and very few do. Tested objectification by name and form within and without. And that objectification, which is reification, and the note here is um, from another Sutta Majjima Nikaya, which we won't look into. But the idea is that... Uh, Believe, uh, the, the, the process of uh, generating conception from perception to conception, the proliferation of samskara, right? fashioning, 
uh, volitional compounds, fabrications, fermentations, uh, the, gener the basic mental process that gives us um, name and form, naming form, perceiving outer form, inner form, thought form, physical form. Those perceptions, when conceived, gives us the experience of name and form. That's called objectification, making an object, making objects. Well, uh, one makes object by the prior uh, subject subjectification. Only when the eighth fetter is destroyed, right? Conceit or tanamana, the craving conceit, uh, craving-based um, illusory identity called conceit. When that's gone, then there's no more subjective eye, subjectivity or separative subjectivity that is the basis of this objectification. No more objectification when there's no uh, prior established uh, sub, uh, sub, separative subjectivity. When that's gone, then there's freedom from disease. <laughs> so dualism, subject-object as the disease. Uh, and name and form as a, as a symptom. <laughs> Going on. Abstaining from all evils, gone beyond the suffering of hell. Naraka, where, where the agents go. He is one with persistence. He, with persistence, exertion is rightly called a hero. Hey, hey, back to Mahavira. Vira as hero. And there's a play. Uh, he, he um, Tanisaro wrote, reading Vero, like Vira, like virility, yeah, of course, virility comes from the Sanskrit word vir, absolutely. And so, vir is the Sanskrit root, it seems, of the word vira, viro, uh, hero, or virility, coming later. And um, there was another alliteration here, virato, abstaining, viryava, one with persistence, and viro, hero. So, the viro, hero, like Mahavira, great hero, the leader of the Jain sect, who really, um, you know, yeah, he was very well respected by Gautama, I believe. I think they had a cordial relationship. It was not a case of some uh, angry Brahmin who looked down on Gautama or any kind of conflict. I think that they, were, they had affection. So, Viro, Hero, is the one with Viriyava, or persistence, who's the one who has the ability to abstain, Virato. So, one needs courage and strength to abstain. And to do that continually, one needs persistence, or one needs courage and strength and virility to consistently abstain from what should be abstained from, and have persistence in what should be continued. And so it all has to do with vir. And um, with persistence, with exertion, I mean, you know, the four forms of exertion, right? Samapadana, four forms of exertion, four right exertions. Not picking up what shouldn't be picked up. Dropping what should be dropped. <laughs> uh, picking up what should be picked up. And holding and developing what's already been picked up that ought to be maintained and developed. So avoid evil and do good or uh, avoid and get rid of the harmful and internalize and cultivate the harmless or the beneficial. That's all. That's a hero. 
And, and in the end, if we're just clear about pain and dukkha, we will keep uh, more or less living by way of samapadana or the four right exertions. That's the point. You've got to be honest with yourself to admit you're in pain, to be able to drop what's unhelpful that is associated with the causing of the pain. Hmm. I'm in pain. Yes, yes, I am. What pain? This one, that one, the other one. Why? Well, I want to know why. Why? Well, I find a couple of reasons. Then I will find that those are associated with what I've internalized and developed that really ought to be dropped, not maintained. So by, by you know, Ross said, the most rigorous honesty of the adept, one will say, yes, I'm in pain about this, that, and the other thing. I'm unwell here, there, and everywhere, or here and there, and this and that way. Why? Uh, then I'll look at and find some causes. Then I will probably find that I need to make some changes. Then I will realize that I can drop what I've acquired that's unhelpful or harmful. That's all. That's samabhadana. Very straightforward. But uh, one can't make right exertion or have persistence on the path or continue developing if one is dishonest about one's pain. That's a very important point, <laughs> say I. Finally, and this will be the last <clears throat> answer, uh, also for the one who's called thoroughbred like a horse, well-bred, one truly whose bonds are cut within and without, freed from the, the uh, root bonds of snares, he's truly called thoroughbred such. And so here, three out of the four uh, gave us the word tatata, or such, at the end. <clears throat> uh, freedom from the disease of objectification, free um, from bonds of snares and of attachment, craving, clinging, and has this uh, indomitable persistence that never ends to continue making right exertion, which, again, doesn't mean carrying rocks up and down hills. It really is... Uh, Dropping, not picking up what shouldn't be picked up. <laughs> no, you're not acquiring what's harmful and dropping what's already been acquired that's harmful. Picking up what ought to be picked up and that because it's helpful and continuing to cultivate and develop what's already been picked up or acquired that's helpful. So, in turn, you know, taking in and developing the helpful, uh, avoiding and dropping the harmful. That's it. And so... Easier said than done, but the root is a deep commitment to uh, honesty. Yes, I'm in pain about this and that and the other thing. And it may be severe and it may be mild, and but I'm responsible for its causation, even if it's in relation to others or situations. And that honesty then leads us to be able to drop what should be dropped. So, that's it for now. <clears throat> Next time... Uh, <laughs> this is another one of these long commentaries next time looking at um, the last eight answers I think let me just see no no only looking at the last four yes so we've done 16 of the 20 Next time we'll do the final four, and um, what is it said? You know, what's one? One who's learned, one who's noble, one of good conduct, and one named a wanderer. 
me about that, the one who rightly is named thus, and Gautama will explain, and we'll further understand what tatata means, and get some conclusion, and probably finish the sutta next week. So anyway, it's very deep. I think it's really lovely. And um, uh, thank you for being here, and thank you to Tanisaro's great translation, and Robert Chalmers from 1898, and um, all those who are part of the team. <clears throat> so I hope everybody's all right. It's a difficult time on planet Earth, um, but um, love light is, and um, this too shall pass. So please take good care of yourselves. See you next time, and good night.